You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 424 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, the big developments with the last episode were that William Rosecrans was sacked and left Chattanooga. George Thomas was placed in command of the Army of the Cumberland and Ulysses S. Grant rode into town to save the day. Yep, that pretty much sums it up. When we left off at the end of the last show, it was the evening of October 23, 1863, and Ulysses S. Grant had just arrived at Chattanooga. During his own arduous two-day journey from Stevenson, Alabama, Grant experienced firsthand the difficult conditions along the Federal's sole remaining supply route into Chattanooga. As y'all will recall, with the Confederates occupying Lookout Mountain and some of Lookout Valley west of Chattanooga, they were able to interdict the railroad, river, and roads that offered the best routes to get supplies into the town. The only supply line left to the Federals was a route that bypassed Lookout Valley by going many miles to the north and using a very steep, winding road up and over Walden's Ridge. That journey, which was challenging for wagons even in good weather, became nothing short of a nightmare as the rains that October turned the route into a 60-mile-long ribbon of mud. The flow of supplies into Chattanooga slowed to a trickle, and the result was a time of near starvation for the Army of the Cumberland. Conditions would only worsen with winter approaching, and so something had to be done if the Federals were to have any hope of holding Chattanooga. There was, quite literally, no time to lose, so once he arrived at Chattanooga, Grant went straight to George Thomas's headquarters. In the last several weeks before getting sacked, William Rosecrans had already started to piece together a plan to open a new supply line into the town. Later on, the Army's new chief engineer, Baldy Smith, who had arrived at Chattanooga on September 30th, would claim the plan was entirely his and that Rosecrans had nothing to do with it. Be that as it may, the very evening he arrived at Chattanooga, Ulysses S. Grant asks Smith to brief him on the plan. Baldy Smith explained the position of the two armies and the surrounding geography. 
It was the terrain around Chattanooga which made opening a new supply line into the town so challenging. Just below Chattanooga, the Tennessee River turned south for three miles until it reached the foot of Lookout Mountain. Then it curved away from the mountain and ran back north for several miles. This double curve was called Moccasin Bend. Below Moccasin Bend, the river runs northwest to round the northern end of Raccoon Mountain before turning southwest again to flow on toward Bridgeport and Stevenson, the two towns in northeast Alabama where the Federals had established supply depots. A wagon road crossed the base, or neck, of Moccasin Bend, starting just across the river from Chattanooga and running westward to a place called Brown's Ferry, opposite Raccoon Mountain. Just across from the ferry was a gap in the heights, Cummings Gap, and the road that led through Cummings Gap came down the west side of Raccoon Mountain at Kelly's Ferry. In other words, just a pontoon bridge and an easy haul from the Federal Supply Depots at Bridgeport and Stevenson. Using this new route, supply wagons would have a relatively short haul and good roads from Bridgeport to Kelly's Ferry, then across the pontoon bridge, and then through Cummings Gap to Brown's Ferry. A pontoon bridge there would allow them to cross Moccasin Bend and reach Chattanooga. All this could be done at once. The only fly in the ointment was the presence of Confederate troops who occupied the south bank of the Tennessee River from Lookout Mountain all the way round the bend north of Raccoon Mountain and who could be expected to object to any such operation by the Federals. Something would have to be done about the problem posed by those rebels, and Smith believed he had an answer. Three separate forces of Federal troops would converge suddenly on Brown's Ferry, seizing the west bank of the Tennessee there, along with the northern end of Lookout Valley and Raccoon Mountain. First, a brigade of infantry would pile into flatboats and pontoons and make a daring, pre-dawn passage down the river, round Moccasin Bend under the guns of the rebels, and land on the west bank opposite Brown's Ferry. Second, another brigade, having marched across the Moccasin Bend Wagon Road, would be ferried across the river in the boats that had landed the first wave. Third, coming up to meet them from the south, would be the heavy manpower, Hooker's three divisions. Hooker would set out from Bridgeport, Alabama, marching along the main road, through Running Water Gap, south of Raccoon Mountain, and then turn northward, down Lookout Valley, to link up with the two brigades that had seized the bridgehead at Brown's Ferry. Grant liked the plan. However, before setting all the pieces in motion, he wanted to see the ground for himself. So early the next morning, he was back in the saddle and riding out the Moccasin Bend Wagon Road for a personal reconnaissance with Baldy Smith and George Thomas. October 24th dawned cold and misty. Ulysses S. Grant, George Thomas, and Baldy Smith, trailing a cloud of staff officers, all departed Chattanooga, trotted across the pontoon bridge over to Moccasin Bend, and then Smith led the party down to the river at Brown's Ferry, 
where everyone dismounted and made their way to the water's edge. Due to the Tennessee's abrupt hairpin bend at the foot of Lookout Mountain, the river flowed north here for a considerable stretch, meaning that over on the opposite shore, the line of hills and the notch through them that was Cummings Gap lay due west of Grant's observation point. Everyone could see the rebel pickets on the opposite shore. The Tennessee River here at Brown's Ferry was about 300 yards wide. The Confederate soldiers Grant observed across the way belonged to Evander Law's brigade, a force of five Alabama regiments from Hood's division. Only a portion of Law's brigade picketed the riverbank here at the northern end of Lookout Valley, on the west side of Lookout Mountain's imposing mass. In fact, the difficulty involved in reaching this spot and moving supplies up to any troops posted here meant that these rebels, at the northern end of Lookout Valley, watching the river, were essentially isolated from the rest of the Confederate Army. From the riverbank, Grant could clearly see, as he said, quote, a picket station of about 20 men, end quote. However, because of the informal live-and-let-live agreement between the Confederate and Federal soldiers at Chattanooga, the rebels made no effort to shoot at the gaggle of Union officers at the riverbank, taking in the view. Grant said, quote, They did not fire upon us or seem to be disturbed by our presence. In any case, Grant liked what he saw. The current at this spot was slow enough that a pontoon bridge could be thrown across the river easily. The line of hills on the far bank, if seized quickly by the Federals, would act as a defensive shield behind which the bridge could be completed without interference from the rebels. Satisfied the plan would work, Grant gave orders to execute it just as quickly as preparations could be completed. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, 
not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Grant left the detailed planning for the Browns Ferry operation to Baldy Smith and George Thomas. That afternoon, as word was sent to Hooker about his end of the plan, George Thomas selected the assault units from the Chattanooga garrison. He selected William Hazen's brigade for the dangerous Riverborne assault and John Turchin's brigade to form the second wave of troops that would cross the river and back up Hazen. The operation was scheduled to begin in just three days' time at 3 a.m. on the morning of October 27th. The federal plan was complex, depending on audacity and careful timing, but unknown to the Yankees, the unhappy state of affairs in the Confederate Army would greatly boost their chances of success. You see, after Jefferson Davis's departure and Braxton Bragg's ongoing attempts to suppress insubordination and break up mutinous cliques in the officer corps, relations between the top brass of the Army of Tennessee had continued along their dismal course. However, the Army's internal conflicts weren't solely the province of the most senior commanders. For example, two rebel officers, Evander Law and Micah Jenkins, each commanded brigades in Hood's division. The 27-year-old Law, a South Carolinian, had served in the division for more than a year and commanded it in action at both Gettysburg and Chickamauga after Hood was wounded on both battlefields. The 29-year-old Jenkins was another South Carolinian and a very recent transfer from Virginia, arriving after the Battle of Chickamauga. Jenkins was intensely ambitious and orchestrated this transfer to Bragg's army to better his chances of promotion. Law and Jenkins were both brigadier generals, but Jenkins' date of rank made him senior to Law by two months, and with Hood still recovering from his Chickamauga wounding, Jenkins assumed divisional command. Evander Law was no less ambitious than Jenkins. There immediately developed a bitter rivalry between the two officers. The key to permanent command of the division lay in securing promotion to Major General, so both men mustered political influence to further their chances of having the Confederate Congress approve their promotion. In early October, James Longstreet dispatched Law to Lookout Valley with the twin objectives of defending the riverbank and controlling the rail line from Alabama. Law pointed out that it would take a full division to adequately defend the valley, but Longstreet gave the assignment to just a single brigade, Law's. In any case, the Confederate Army's logistical difficulties and the challenging terrain meant that supplying even that brigade-sized force in Lookout Valley would prove difficult. Hunger would gnaw at the bellies of Law's men, as they would be almost as short of rations as the Yankees across the river. Law positioned his small force carefully. Two regiments picketed the riverbank as far as Raccoon Mountain. Law kept his other three regiments in reserve on the hills near the western base of Lookout Mountain. 
Then, since everything was quiet, Law took a short leave to go visit Hood, where he was recuperating 30 miles away behind the lines. That very same day, Jenkins, as acting division commander, ordered Law's three reserve regiments to move back to the eastern side of Lookout Mountain. Jenkins' decision to shift the bulk of Law's brigade out of the valley and over to the east side of Lookout Mountain was never explained. Micah Jenkins was mortally wounded by friendly fire the next spring, and so never had a chance to address the post-war controversy over his decision. Evander Law believed that it was a deliberate piece of sabotage designed to damage his reputation by stripping his sector of the troops he needed to defend it at a critical moment. However, deliberate malice seems unlikely, since Jenkins was a Confederate patriot and committed to the cause, and while he certainly viewed Law as a rival, it's more likely the move was a combination of a poorly timed effort by Jenkins to assert his authority over the division, and because the Confederates couldn't adequately supply the five regiments over on the far side of Lookout Mountain anyway. In any case, the Federals hadn't stirred in Law's sector for weeks, so there seemed little risk in the move. To make matters worse for the Confederates, Braxton Bragg and James Longstreet remained at odds. Neither man had seen each other face to face since Jefferson Davis had departed the army. Bragg sat in his headquarters atop Missionary Ridge, studiously ignoring Longstreet as much as possible, while Longstreet brooded in his tent at the eastern foot of Lookout Mountain. On October 25th, Bragg passed along to Longstreet some intelligence that indicated a move by the Federals against the Confederate left, and he ordered Longstreet to make a reconnaissance toward Bridgeport to determine if the Yankees were indeed up to something. However, Longstreet ignored the order. As we know, the Yankees were indeed up to something. The officers of Hazen's brigade formed up their men shortly after midnight on the morning of October 27th and then marched them down to the Chattanooga Riverfront to kick off the elaborately planned operation for opening the Federal's new supply line. Hazen's troops made the unwelcome discovery that the boats wouldn't hold as many passengers as advertised and that even with reduced loads, they were so crowded that the men had to stand and balance precariously, packed so tight the oarsmen had difficulty rowing. Nevertheless, by 3 a.m., the boats were ready to shove off from the Chattanooga Riverfront. The bright hunter's moon had set, and now the mist on the water thickened the gloom and promised additional protection against detection. The awkward, overloaded flotilla set off downstream on its nine-mile journey past the Confederate positions at the foot of Lookout Mountain. Rounding Moccasin Bend, they let the current carry them north again, away from the dark form of Lookout Mountain that blotted out the stars in the southern sky. Finally, at about 5 a.m., William Hazen, waiting on the right bank with the expedition's overland contingent near the large signal fire that had been lit at Brown's Ferry, 
saw the boats drift out of the dark and mist from upstream. With relief, then irritation, and finally alarm, Hazen watched as the boats appeared to be drifting right past the target area across the river. Pull in, Colonel Foy! Pull in! he called out to Lieutenant Colonel James Foy of the 23rd Kentucky, U.S. Hazen had chosen Foy to command the waterborne force. The oarsmen in the boats hauled furiously at their sweeps to bring the unwieldy craft across the strong current and to ground on the far shore. The Confederates along the riverbank, who until now had shown no signs of life, now opened fire as Foy and his men scrambled out of the boats and up onto solid ground. The Federals had come ashore a little too far downstream, but they quickly oriented themselves, then pushed ahead and drove the rebels away from the riverbank. They immediately started to ply their axes to chop down trees and erect breastworks on the crest of two low hills beyond the ferry landing. The Confederates' voice Federals had driven off were pickets of the 4th and 15th Alabama of Law's Brigade, commanded this morning by the 15th's Colonel William C. Oates. Oates and the 15th Alabama will be familiar to y'all from their epic fight with the 20th Maine on Little Round Top at the Battle of Gettysburg. Here, far from Gettysburg, Oates called upon his few available reserve companies and launched a hasty counterattack against the enemy foothold along the riverbank. In the pre-dawn darkness, Oates' force stumbled into and collided with Foy's Federals at close range, with each side only able to tell where the enemy was by the flash of their muskets. And for a few moments the issue seemed to be in doubt as the Yankees fell back toward the ferry landing. However, the boats had kept moving back and forth across the river, bringing over the balance of Hazen's brigade, and by this time also some of Turchin's second wave. There were now simply too many Federals for Oates' small force to overcome, and the Alabamans had to withdraw. Oates himself went down with a bullet in the thigh. Evander Law, who just hours before had returned from his leave, brought his three remaining regiments up as quickly as he could toward the sound of the fighting along the riverbank. But by the time he arrived on the scene, the federal bridgehead at Brown's Ferry was simply too strong to hope to overwhelm, and so Law pulled his brigade back to the slopes of Lookout Mountain and sent word of the disaster to Longstreet. A drizzling rain was falling as the sun rose on the morning of October 27th, but the weather couldn't dampen the joy of the federal troops at Brown's Ferry, who were busy fortifying their bridgehead. Realizing their success had altered the entire situation at Chattanooga, Hazen exclaimed, We've knocked the cover off the cracker box. Indeed they had. By 10 a.m., a pontoon bridge spanned the Tennessee River at Brown's Ferry, and the basic conditions were in place for restoring the flow of supplies to the federal troops holding Chattanooga, just as soon as the wagons could be set rolling along the new cracker line. The Browns Ferry operation had been a complete success. Within days of his arrival at Chattanooga, Ulysses S. Grant had opened a new supply route, dubbed the Cracker Line, into the town. Things had taken a turn for the better for the besieged Federals. 
but the issue now depended upon how quickly Hooker could arrive with his troops to keep the line open and what Braxton Bragg would do to close it. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Mountains Touched with Fire, Chattanooga Besieged, 1863, by Wiley Sword. Besides having an outstanding, martial-sounding name, Wiley Sword authored a number of excellent titles that deserve a spot on your Civil War bookshelf, including Mountains Touched with Fire. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. It's been a couple of weeks since we gave a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thanked them for their support of the podcast. So, a big thank you to John G., Rob S., Curran2929, and Bob C., William L., John K., Fred F., and Brad B. Brett L., Dale C., and Stephen B. And for their recent donations, thanks to Jesse L., Neil F., Graham M., John N., Gary, and Brandon B. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.